You're listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with Dr. Gil Parad. Today I'm talking osteomyelitis. Osteo means bone. Myelo refers to marrow. Itis, of course, means inflammation. When you have inflammation and destruction of bone by microbes, whether it be mycobacteria, aerobic and anaerobic bacteria, or a fungus, we doctors refer to that infection as osteomyelitis. So which bones in the body can become infected? Any of the 206 bones in the adult human body. And just in case you are ever on Jeopardy or want to look smart during a cocktail hour, infants actually have more than 206 bones and they fuse together as the baby grows. So let's do a basic review of larger bone structures. You have the periosteum. Peri means around, and periosteum is the membrane around the surface of a bone. It is not found at the places where there is articular cartilage, but it surrounds the majority of bone. We also have the fatty yellow marrow that essentially stores energy, and the red marrow that makes blood via hematopoiesis, both contained within the marrow cavity, also known as the medullary cavity. Between the periosteum and the marrow is the main types of bone called compact bone, which is dense bone, and the less solid spongy bone. So what parts of the bone can microorganisms infect? It can be any portion of the bone or include several parts, including the periosteum, cortex, and marrow. The bones are also supplied with arteries, veins, lymph vessels, The importance of this can't be overstated because what happens when vascular channels are occluded or destroyed by inflammation is so important. If a portion of bone doesn't have blood supply, not only will that area be void of nutrients, the antibiotics you get for infection will also not reach that avascular area, and therefore the medical treatment you prescribe will greatly disappoint you and your patient. I can't cover all osteomyelitis scenarios, especially those needing their own lecture. I will not be addressing osteomyelitis associated with infected prosthesis, vertebral osteomyelitis, or post-cardiac surgery sternum osteomyelitis. No pediatric issues will be addressed, and I do not treat children. So, how does one get a bone infection? You can get it hematogenously by bacteremic spread if you like to abuse IV drugs or when there is bacteremia from a pre-existing infection like endocarditis, urinary tract sepsis, pneumonia, indwelling lines like dialysis catheters or whatever. You'll probably see it more frequently from direct spread, also known as contiguous spread, through an open wound. That may be a diabetic foot ulcer, very common, or a decubitus ulcer, or a penetrating trauma with direct contamination. Direct spread from surgery, particularly implants, is obviously a cause as well. Dental root infections or even sinus infections can lead to contiguous spread into bone. So let's talk about diagnosis. First thing, particularly in diabetic foots, is to look for physical exam signs of pain if the neuropathy isn't too severe. And that's the problem. A lot of these patients, their neuropathy is severe and they won't feel pain. Vascular disease, very common. Weak pulses, something to look for, history of claudication, 
and arterial studies are often needed. Cellulitis can be present, but it is often absent despite an underlying bone infection. Sinus tracts, tracts leading from skin to bone, are something to look for. Sinus tracts can cause contiguous osteomyelitis, but infected bone trying to release pus pressure in any area may cause a sinus tract to form. So again, it's the chicken and the egg. Did the bone cause the sinus tract or did the wound with the sinus tract infect the bone? There was a study in the March 1st, 1995 Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, analyzing diabetic ulcers in which you could probe bone at the bedside through a sinus tract. And I want to read to you the conclusion, which was, Palpation of bone in the depths of infected pedal ulcers in patients with diabetes is strongly correlated with the presence of underlying osteomyelitis. If bone is palpated on probing, specialized imaging tests to diagnose osteomyelitis are unnecessary. Probing for bone should be included in the initial assessment of all diabetic patients with infected pedal ulcers. So that was their conclusion. Obviously, if you do not palpate bone with a blunt stainless steel instrument, you have not excluded osteomyelitis. However, if you do palpate bone, there was a high positive predictive value of about 89% that there is osteomyelitis. And while on the topic of sinus tracts to bone, and speaking of JAMA studies, let me take you back to June 30th, 1978, when JAMA printed a study titled The Diagnostic Value of Sinus Tract Cultures in Chronic Osteomyelitis. They compared those sinus tract cultures to cultures from operative specimens of bone, and they only correlated 44% of the time. Not very good. There were some important lessons I want to share from that article in which I will quote the authors, and they said this, Since no bone biopsy specimen yielded numerous pathogens when care had been taken to avoid contamination by sinus tract material, we suspect that true polymicrobial osteomyelitis is uncommon. And then they also went on to say this quote, Thus, chronic osteomyelitis appears to be a monomicrobial infection whose bacteriologic integrity is maintained during long periods, even in the face of prolonged antibiotic use. In contrast to the constancy of the flora of bone, the bacterial flora of an associated sinus tract varies dramatically with time. And that's the end of the quote. So among the various take-home points is that if you culture a sinus tract today and reculture it a week from now, you may grow different organisms. Therefore, cultures from a bone biopsy of infected bone is needed to guide antibiotic choice. Now let's talk about bone biopsy. It can be CAT scan guided or an open biopsy. Many believe we should try and always get a bone biopsy before starting antibiotics. The exception may be if blood cultures are positive and you have imaging evidence of active osteomyelitis. Another exception would be if the patient is really sick and you think it is too dangerous to wait on getting a biopsy before starting antibiotics. When you do start antibiotics empirically without significant signs of sepsis or major cellulitis, 
Most ID docs will grumble curse words intermixed with your name. Probably a good rule of thumb is to call ID before starting empiric antibiotics for osteomyelitis. Bone biopsy cultures can be negative if antibiotics already started, though sometimes neutrophil quantity will indicate infection, but you won't know exactly what type of infection. Sometimes the patchy distribution of osteomyelitis makes for a false negative bone biopsy, which in my experience makes the patient rather unhappy when you tell them you still don't have an answer. There also is the potential for harm from procedural complications when doing bone biopsy. Again, this is a population not known for stellar wound healing, so there are some that don't think it's 100% essential prior to treatment with antibiotics to get a bone biopsy, but they seem to be in the minority. Now let's move on to a few words and tips about diagnosis by imaging. Radioisotope scans can identify areas of infected bone before x-rays. The problem is you sometimes have trouble knowing what is infection versus fractures and tumors with these scans. X-rays, they are fast, they are easy, but they often miss early infections. Usually if the infection is within the last two weeks, you may miss it. It's not a bad place to start, particularly if you suspect chronic osteomyelitis, but for those you suspect acute infections, x-rays won't rule that possibility out if they are negative. The one-liner king, Henny Youngman, said, when I told my doctor I couldn't afford an operation, he offered to touch up my x-rays. But in reality, X-rays can change for the good, or in the case of osteomyelitis, for the bad. You can consider repeating X-rays in a couple weeks if the initial ones are negative. MRI is much more sensitive and specific than X-ray, and is considered the preferred imaging, particularly for diabetic foot ulcers and spine infections. That's not to say false positives from fractures and tumors don't exist with MRI, because that happens. CT can be done if MRI is contraindicated because of a pump, pacer, or whatever reason. If there is metal near the area you are trying to image, artifact limits the ability of CAT scanning. If that is a case and you can't do a CT or MRI, well, now you're back to needing the nuclear study that I started talking about. Let's move on now and talk about treatment considerations. We need to try and distinguish acute from chronic osteomyelitis. But the problem is there are no specific timetables, so I'll be purposefully general about acute versus chronic osteo. Acute osteo evolves over days or weeks, and it often responds to antibiotics alone. Chronic osteo loosely indicates you've had the infection for at least several weeks. Chronic osteo usually is associated with avascular dead bone, that needs antibiotics, but also usually needs surgical debridement if cure is the goal. Let me restate this point, and I'll quote Friedrich Nietzsche. Many are stubborn in the pursuit of the path that they have chosen, few in pursuit of the goal. And that's Friedrich Nietzsche. With chronic osteomyelitis, debridement down to living bone and removing dead bone surgically is almost always required. If you want to first try revascularization surgery and long-term antibiotics, you wouldn't be alone in making that attempt. Good luck. 
but usually you'll still need to eventually remove the dead bone. Often removing a dead toe now saves a foot later. Also, it's important to keep in mind that wounds over infected bone do not heal until the bone infection is resolved. Something that is also important to keep in mind, if a patient relapses in the same place, that is a sign of chronic osteomyelitis. What is the best antibiotic for osteomyelitis? There isn't a single choice because the choice of antibiotics should be based on culture and sensitivities. If you have to treat empirically, usually vancomycin and an agent that covers gram-negatives is where you want to start. I will talk about gram-negative treatment in a minute. Obviously, if there's a good reason to suspect tuberculosis or a fungal infection, your thinking in regards to a treatment plan will be radically different from the usual antibiotics. First, let's talk about Staphylococcus aureus. What makes it the most common organism infecting bone? A bunch of characteristics are responsible for that fact. There's the stickiness of Staphylococcus aureus, its incredible ability to attach itself to proteins and surfaces by means of adhesins demands respect. Other types of bacteria have adhesins, but staph contains some virulence advantages with its particular multiple types of adhesins. The second thing is staph has the ability to invade and break down tissues by hydrolases. These are enzymes that split substances apart into simpler compounds, and it has powerful exotoxins and catalase that breaks down hydrogen peroxide that the body tries to kill the bug with, and lots of other stuff microbiologists know about. The third thing is, while not unique to staph, whether it's aureus or staph epidermitis, they are very effective at forming biofilms. These biofilms, which are basically a slime coating of bacteria, make bacteria resistant to white blood cell phagocytosis and antibiotics. Now, speaking of biofilms, this may be a good time to mention the antibiotic rifampin. There are some who believe adding rifampin to infections with biofilms, such as in certain osteomyelitis infections, can be of benefit. It's not certain whether that is the case or not. What is certain is that rifampin should never be the sole antibiotic choice since it develops resistance fast, but certain ID docs regard it as a worthy addition to the antibiotics they are already giving. Now, there's special consideration for the type of staph called MRSA, as we all know. Why do infections with MRSA have worse outcomes in regards to both morbidity and mortality compared to MSSA? And I will use the Socratic method and answer the question with more questions. Is it really a sicker patient because the type of person who gets exposed to MRSA got it in a place like a hospital or a nursing home or a dialysis center? Yes, that seems to be common sense. Is it because the antibiotics we use for MRSA aren't as effective as those used for MSSA? Yes, and we know that if you have a methicillin-sensitive staph, that using vancomycin for it is actually less effective than using beta-lactams for a methicillin-sensitive staph. Is MRSA simply more virulent than methicillin-sensitive staph? 
That also seems to be true. Now let's move on to gram-negative infections. Fluoroquinolones have good bone penetration and are probably a worthy choice if the organism is susceptible. There are some that raise a legitimate worry that quinolones might decrease new bone formation, so some don't like using them in osteomyelitis. We do know quinolones impede the healing of fractures, so how important that may be in osteomyelitis is a topic of debate. Ceftazidime and cefepime will cover gram-negative organisms, but obviously don't have the ability to be used orally like quinolones. The one class you really don't want to use for gram-negative bone infections is aminoglycosides because they don't penetrate bone effectively. In a Lancet article about osteomyelitis from July 24, 2004, there is an excellent table on page 370 that defines the most common organisms in specific clinical situations. And these are excellent pearls that are very much worth knowing, so I will summarize that table now. And it starts with the point that I already said that Staphylococcus aureus is the most common type of organism causing osteomyelitis. If you have a foreign body-associated infection, think about coagulase-negative staph, like staph epidermitis or proponeobacterium. And common nosocomial infections can include Pseudomonas, Enterobacters, Candidas, sickle cell disease. You want to think about Salmonella in the sickle cell population. HIV population, Bartonella hensilae is an organism you have to think about. As we all know with human or animal bites, you want to think about Pasteurella or Iconella. In immunocompromised patients, things can get really tough, and that's where you have to start thinking about Aspergillus, Candida, Mycobacteria, and obviously anybody that has a significant exposure to TB, you have to think about Mycobacterium. Now, when it is a bacteria, how long should we treat with antibiotics? Nobody knows. Four and more often six weeks seems like a commonly used time frame. Basically, it's up to the infectious disease doctor, and the patient will be long discharged from the hospital when the antibiotics are stopped. It's not that one should pick six weeks arbitrarily and stop antibiotics. If there are still signs of infection when the six-week mark is hit, the antibiotics will need to be continued. Oftentimes, docs will periodically check inflammatory markers, C-reactive protein, and erythrocyte sedimentation rates to see if the signs of inflammation are improving. Usually the ESR and the CRP should drop within the first week or so when treating osteomyelitis. There are cases of chronic refractory osteomyelitis where docs have these patients on long-term antibiotics for years and even decades. Maybe it's an area that surgery is less than ideal and the decision is made not to cure the infection and instead chronically suppress it. There's a writer, Kasky Stanett, that said, the trouble with being a hypochondriac these days is that antibiotics have cured all the good diseases. Well, Kasky, not always. There are still plenty of infectious horrors we can terrify you hypochondriacs with, like decades of antibiotics needed for osteomyelitis. Another tip worth mentioning about osteomyelitis and antibiotics. Clindamycin gets into bones with good penetration. 
So if your organism is susceptible, like many anaerobes, it can be a good choice to consider, particularly if switching to an oral medication is desirable at some point since Clinda comes in both the IV and the oral forms. There is a textbook first published in 2008 titled Clinical Infectious Disease that is edited by David Schlossberg. On page 481, there is a table provided regarding the antibiotic choice for osteomyelitis according to organism. The table also provides the alternatives to the first-line choices in case your patient is allergic or unable to take certain antibiotics. And let me summarize this table for you. If you have staph aureus and it's penicillin-sensitive, Penicillin itself, penicillin G, is a good treatment choice. Alternatives would be cephalosporins, clinda, or vanco. If you have penicillin resistance, that's when you want to consider nafcillin. If you have methicillin-resistant staph aureus, MRSA, vancomycin is a good first choice. There are various streptococci that can cause osteomyelitis, Penicillin is often a good first choice, erythromycin, uh, clindamycin, vancomycin. And then as we mentioned with enteric gram-negative rods, quinolone, not a bad choice. And anaerobes, clindamycin, pretty good choice. So a lot of that is review of what I have already said. Now, what about hyperbaric oxygen therapy? So far, there is no overly convincing evidence, but some try it for refractory osteomyelitis. A bit more data on hyperbaric oxygen for this condition is needed before anybody gives official recommendations. So that is my overview for osteomyelitis. Until next time, you've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast.